Hey friends, welcome to season three, episode one of the Making Room on the Pew podcast, a podcast for the church misfits and outcasts. My name is Bailey Welch Pomerantz, your host here on the show, and I am so excited to be back here with you guys today. Hey friends, we are back and I am so excited to be back here with you. We have had quite a year here in the Welch Pomerantz households. Um, some of you may know that we started the adoption process um, here in New Jersey. We are going through the state adopting through foster care. Um, and basically what I have learned so far is that foster care uh, takes over your whole life and steals your soul. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but it it does it takes a lot of work um a lot of dedication it's not something you can uh really just kind of stumble into or decide hey one day um you know i want to i want to try this and and see where it takes me um it's a it's a serious business and sarah and i are actually going to be talking next week uh about that so we'll kind of talk a little bit about foster care adoption the process um what's been going on here. Uh, But today, I am really, really excited to have Gina Thomas here um, on the show. If you guys don't know her, you need to know her. Um, She's amazing. She wrote this new book that came out last month called Separated by the Border, A Birth Mother, A Foster Mother, and a Migrant Child's 3,000-Mile Journey. Um, Guys, it's amazing. Um, honestly, I mean, so Gina goes through this, this story of being a foster mom and getting this call that they had a child who was separated from her parents at the border and she only spoke Spanish and Gina and her husband, um, well, her family speak Spanish, um, she and her husband were actually missionaries in Mexico for a while, and her uh, oldest child's, uh, her son, was actually born there. Um, So because of that, they were able to give this child, her name is Julia, uh, a home for eight months. And during that time, Gina really fought to get Julia back to Honduras, back with her uh, mom, back reunited with her family, because Gina knows that it is always better for children to stay with a biological family member, if at all possible, if at all safe. Um, So the story is just incredible. And of course, along with that, we talk about some more serious issues. We talk about um, immigration, uh, the crisis at the border, uh, foster care, transracial adoption, white savior complexes. I mean, we really go into so much. Um, And I'm so thankful that Gina is the one talking to us about this. Um, I mean, she's just so smart. She has lived this. I mean, this is her work. This is what she does professionally. This is what she writes about. This is what she lives. Um, So I'm just really thankful for her and for her work, and that I get to introduce um, you all to her today. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Gina Thomas. Um, I'm really thankful that you're here on the podcast today. Um, 
your new book is incredible. Um, oh, thank you. Oh my gosh, I love it so much. Um, and I'm really, <laughs> really excited to talk about, I mean, you just talk about so much stuff in there, immigration, foster care, adoption, I mean, like white savior complex, all of it is so important. Um, I'm just, <laughs> I'm, Thank you. I'm really excited and I'm hoping that we get through all of my questions because, <laughs> because <laughs> I know there are so many. Um, <laughs> well, thank right. you. And I appreciate you taking the time to read it. It, it, it takes, takes concerted effort on your part as well. And I appreciate the, the research that you do to go into this stuff. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, so for our listeners who maybe don't know you yet, could you just tell them a little bit about, um, like yourself, your family, your work? Sure. Well, um, I am Gina Thomas and I am a writer. Um, that's really my side gig. I have a full-time job where I work at a, um, an organization that helps uh, support local churches to do holistic development. Um, and then I'm also a mom. I've got two kids, uh, one who is about to turn eight and the other who just turned four. Um, and my husband, Andrew, and I have been married for a decade, which is crazy. <laughs> I don't think <laughs> I've been, um, been in, like at anything for that long. So it's, it's a good uh, anchor in my life. And um, yeah, it's not easy being married to a writer. So I appreciate him very much. Right. Yeah. And you have one other book? Out yes. This one? Okay. I do. Yeah. Yeah. That one's called A Smoldering Wick. It's um, my husband and I, we were uh, seven months married when we moved to Mexico as missionaries. So I wouldn't suggest that to anyone. I often tell people, <laughs> <laughs> don't do that. Don't do it that way. Um, but yeah, so we lived in Mexico for about four and a half years, um, and our, our oldest son was actually born there. Um, and the book is essentially about merging what I learned in grad school through international development, uh, the principles of international development, merging that with short-term missions, um, kind of being there on, on the ground and seeing just a lot of damage being done by short-term missions teams. Um, my hope was that that book would kind of help uh, the church should be a little bit more strategic and intentional about how they do short-term missions. So that's what that one's about. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Um, now I like, I like to hear people's stories about becoming writers. Was that always your plan to become an author or did you, I know so many people are like, Oh no, I just kind of fell into it. <laughs> I just like to hear people. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. I want to ask you the same one. Um, uh, so I grew up always writing. I always had a journal. I always um, really had to process my thoughts through words uh, to really understand myself better and how I was dealing with a certain situation. Um, and even before I could hold a pen, my dad uh, tells me stories I don't remember because I have a bad memory, <laughs> which is part of why maybe I'm a writer. Um, but he tells me stories of um, me kind of walking around the house and he would follow me with a notebook and I would be singing songs to God usually. Um, and he would write down the songs that I would kind of make up. Um, so it's always, it's always been there for me. It was never a thing I just fell into. It's always there. Yeah. 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 What about you? Yeah. Uh, same thing. Yep. I was always like, yeah, we, um, 
<laughs> we went back to, so I'm, I'm from Ohio. I grew up on a family farm in Ohio. Okay. Um, and so we actually went back to visit my family um, earlier this year. And my grandparents had dug out of somewhere uh, my first, like, what, I don't know, my first, like, long um, piece of writing that I had written when I was, I mean, I must have been, like, in middle school. And it was oh, wow. so oh my gosh, it was so funny. It was literally, I just ripped off Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> like, it was just, because those are my favorite books, I literally just, like, took those characters and, like, made my own stories and, like, gave them different names. <laughs> That's awesome. That's so. very creative, though, for that age. That's very creative. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I feel the same way. Uh, I've <laughs> always been, yeah, writing, and it's just kind of evolved into uh, this work that we're yeah. doing now. Very um, cool. Yeah. So I want to talk about your new book, Separated by the Border. Um, but before we do, I want to talk a little bit about the foster care system because yeah. you're a foster parent, right? I was. We, it, so okay. we recently moved from North Carolina to Tennessee and the certificate, I can't think, um, right. doesn't transfer from state to state. So, right. yeah. Okay. Um, now, I know that you said, though, in your new book, in your new book, like in the introduction, you were afraid that it was going to make people not want to uh, be foster parents or like mm -hmm. make them feel a certain way towards being uh, foster parents. So I would like to hear a little bit about like, how did you get involved in the foster care system? Was that always the plan? Um, and then also one thing that you would like to tell foster parents or like potential foster parents so we don't scare everybody away before we yeah. start talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good plan. Um, well, foster, foster care was not always in, um, in, in my plan book anyway, uh, but adoption was. And I started traveling when I was 16. Uh, first place I went to was Nicaragua and I had traveled um, from that time until I was a young adult to a lot of different countries for several different reasons. Um, but I, I saw a lot of, um, I guess outside of my bubble, I saw life outside of my bubble. And sadly it took um, traveling overseas to do that. I, I now hope for my own children that we'll do a lot of that right here because it's, it's really quite amazing how different someone's life can be right around the corner from where you live. Um, but in, in all those travels, I kind of really felt strongly against having children biologically um, and really felt like adoption was the only way for me. Um, but then when Andrew and I uh, got together, we talked through some stuff and um, ended up deciding that we would, that we would have biological and that we would also try to do adoption at the same time. And so when we were in Mexico, like I said, we were there for about four and a half years and we tried to adopt internationally um, not long after our son was born. And there were a lot of different rules and regulations for whether or not a person could adopt um, being an American living in Mexico. So uh, in all the different agencies that we looked 
to, there was no, there was no one that would adopt to an American living on Mexican soil. Um, unless there was one agency that would, and their rule was your youngest biological child had to be six years old. Um, and ours was, had just been born so that it wasn't an option for us. And, you know, going down to Mexico, um, that was kind of my, part of my hope in being there was to adopt. Um, I didn't know for sure that if we would or not, but that was always kind of in the back of my head. Um, but then when I went through, so my, uh, master's degree is in international development. And I did that mostly online, um, through Eastern university. And the more I studied international development and the more I studied some of these things like white savior complexes and um, just a lot of really amazing books like Walking with the Poor and um, God of the Empty Handed, just really trying to understand better a theology of poverty. Uh, I started to see within myself this uh, ideal of adoption that wasn't actually uh, true or beneficial to um, the family of children, if that makes sense. So basically, I kind of took the parent, the biological parents out of the equation in my head and thought that um, an interracial, international adoption was fine no matter what. Um, and the more I studied on, on these kinds of topics, the more I kind of realized that I had not even paid attention to um, orphans and vulnerable children in my own country um, right around the neighborhoods that I grew up in. And so I that really, really struck me hard. And so when we left Mexico. Um, our son was two and a half years old. And, you know, I, if I had looked ahead from the time we first um, planned to go to Mexico and saw that we were not going to be able to adopt, I think I would have been really sad about it. But having the knowledge that I had when we left Mexico, I was actually very happy about it because I felt like um, we needed to be more grounded in our own context and adopt it in the context that we were going to plan to live in for a while. So um, I know that's not everyone's journey and not everyone's opinion, but it was, it was what I needed. Um, and I think, I think for people who want to adopt, um, I think that foster care needs to be at least on the radar. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Um, we are um, in the adoption process right now and we are going through the state Okay. Um, awesome. Specifically. Yeah. So, um, originally we, our plan was to just foster, like we okay. were only, only going to, um, accept like children whose plan was to reunify with their parents. Um, yeah. but the more that we learned, uh, the more we couldn't say no, like there are, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, oh my gosh, there are so many kids in New Jersey who mm -hmm. can't, I mean, their like parental rights have already been severed. They're already not allowed to go back to yep. their families and no one wants them, especially yep. the older kids. Yep. Um, so yes, I totally agree. Foster that's so awesome. Adoption. Yeah. Oh, I'm so oh, excited you. for you guys. That's, that's awesome. Thanks. Wow. Um, yeah, it's exciting. Um, so what is your one thing you'd like to tell potential foster parents? Yeah, I think, um, I think one thing, biggest thing is that, uh, and, and a lot of this comes out um, in my first book, but just this idea of justice, biblical justice, especially foster parents who are Christians. Um, I think it's easy in the foster care system to assume that 
the foster parents are kind of like the ones giving a handout uh, to either the biological parents or to the foster child. So it kind of always feels like a charity situation. Um, and if I could tell foster parents one thing, it would be that this is not, this is not a situation where as foster parents, you're on a pedestal and the foster children are beneath you or below you or, um, or the biological parents are there. This is a situation where you need to enter thinking that you can receive as much as you can give. And, um, and that this is about biblical justice, not about American charity. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love that. I'm going to have to write that down. (laughs) Um, (laughs) gosh, that's, it's so good. Um, I know there are so many, um, foster parents who are doing such great work, um, in that space, like to give, um, visibility to foster care. Um, Mm -hmm. but I feel like there's only a couple who are really, uh, being honest about it and really saying like, this is how hard it is. This is, um, like these kids are mine while they're here, but Hmm. the goal is for them to go back to their parents. Um, yeah, I think that is, uh, so important to remember when you start that process. It really is. And I think, you know, reunification is something that, um, it feels like automatically, especially in the church, um, it's very much looked down upon um, immediately. And people, that's one of the first things people say, I could never be a foster parent because I could not give the child back to their biological parents. And, um, and to me, that is, um, I know it's unconscious to a lot of people, but to me, that is a, um, evidence that the gospel is not taking hold of us as well as it should, because the gospel says that all people are worthy, right? And all people are, um, capable of transformation um, and to the, the gospel also shows us to me, the Trinity shows us family and divine family and what that looks like. And so for us to be like, oh, I don't want to, um, I don't want to like give my home and my life away for six months to then just have the child like be reunified. Well, that means that you want to possess this child. That doesn't mean that you want the best for them. And I think immediately that should be a red flag for us in really trying to understand better what our hearts are behind this, because it shouldn't be about what's best for me as a foster parent. It should be about what's best for the child. And in most cases, the best thing for the child is to be reunified with their family. And that, that is something that's, that actually is quite beautiful. If we really believe in redemption, that's beautiful. And we need to believe in the power of it. Yeah. Oh, it absolutely is. You know, I, um, I was a social work major through school and I did my internship in foster care. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. And that is something I wish every single person who said, you know, I couldn't be a foster parent because I wouldn't want to give the kid back. Like I wish they could just um, sit in the courtroom and hear the judge say, you get to go home and see that. I mean, Yes. yes it was also amazing to sit in the courtroom and see adoption. That is absolutely beautiful as well. But there's something so special about seeing a kid get to go back to their family um, and their parents being given that grace. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, absolutely. 
All right, so we could talk about foster care this uh, whole time, but let's, uh, <laughs> let's, let's talk about um, separated by the border. Um, okay. I am just going to let you go ahead and tell us. I mean, this story is incredible. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> if I get off track or if I get confusing, please let me know. Okay. Um, so... My, so Andrew and I became foster parents in October of 2017 and we, um, in February of 2018, we got a call, um, from the social worker saying that they were curious if we would be interested in taking in a child, uh, that only spoke Spanish. Um, and as I said before, we lived in Mexico for four and a half years, so we both spoke Spanish. Um, and initially, the thought was that this child would be um, um, sent back to ICE, so um, Customs Enforcement, right? Mm -hmm. um, because the idea, they thought at the time that um, her parents had been deported and that she was kind of left behind. Well, so it was just going to be a weekend. We already had another foster daughter in our home at the time. Um, and we said, okay, we can do it for a weekend, but we knew, and, and our social worker knew that we could not do our two biological children and two foster children. It was too much strain on the family and we had tried it before and it wasn't, wasn't working very well for us. So, um, so we told them, yes, we can. And we showed up in court on Monday and, um, ICE and ORR, which is Office of Refugee Resettlement, were supposed to show up and they didn't. Um, and then the next Monday they were supposed to show up again and they didn't. And so she then became um, essentially under DSS care. Uh, and um, then we had to make a decision, which was one of the most difficult decisions I think I've ever had to make um, of whether or not we would keep one, um, keep the child that was already in our home, in our home, or see if we could find another placement for, for that child and um, allow this child to stay with us for as long as we for, for who, know, who knows, because there was so much uh, about this particular case that was unknown. There was a lot of um, miscommunication, um, incorrect facts that had been given to us. And so um, we didn't know what was happening. Uh, first, we heard her mother had passed away. Then we heard her father had passed away. And so we just, we didn't know what was going on. And there was really no way to know right at that moment when, when we had to make that decision. Um, and so we ended up um, keeping her in our home mostly because we felt like it was going to be very difficult for, um, for them to find another family where both parents spoke Spanish. Mm. And so she stayed in our home and we were in contact with her biological mother. Um, and once that contact was made, so there were thoughts that this would lead to adoption. Um, but once that contact was made with her biological mother, it was very clear that her mother was um, a suitable mother. It was very clear that she was distraught at the fact that her child was not in the place that she had thought she was. Um, and there was there were still a lot of uh, kind of questions about what was going on. But essentially, uh, the plan was then to find a way to get her back to her mom. Well, her mom is from Honduras. The family's from Honduras. And um, her mom was back home in Honduras at the time that we were um, making contact with her. And um, we, we kind of had to figure out through the DSS system how to return a child back to her 
biological mother's home that was in an, in an international situation, uh, which is not typical for DSS. This is not something they normally do. And um, basically with, with DSS, you have to get the court um, to, to, to order reunification. And normally that happens through home studies and um, kind of checkups on the parents and making sure that the, the home is safe and um, uh, accommodating and all that kind of stuff, right? And so this was kind of difficult to do um, internationally. Well, we were able to get the hunter and consulate involved in the situation and they were able to get a home study done um, in Honduras before adjudication. So at court, um, this was in May. So she came to our home in February. In May at the court hearing, um, the judge ruled in favor of, of reunification. Um, and that all happened. Uh, she, the mom was actually able to testify and there was a translator at court through WhatsApp, um, which was really cool. <laughs> yeah. um, to, for the judge to rule in favor of, of her being reunified. And then from there, we had to get the final paperwork done through the consulate to be able to travel back with her um, to her home in Honduras because when she came across, she didn't have any papers. Um, so let me back up a little bit. Um, so she, the, the mother, who um, I call in the book Lupe, the little girl's name uh, is Julia. So Lupe and Julia had traveled um, up from Honduras with, um, with Julia's stepdad, Carlos. So the three of them were traveling up from Honduras and they paid about $7,500 to a smuggler to take them across the border. Well, before they got to, um, to the, the Rio Grande or the Rio Bravo, um, the, the smugglers decided that they were going to hold um, Lupe as a hostage. Essentially, they, they said um, that Carlos could go and get a good job and send money, send more money for, for them to release Lupe. So that was kind of um, the background of, of, of that. So Lupe ended up being held hostage for I, what we think about two months, three months maybe. Um, that's kind of all fuzzy because there's a lot of that that Lupe doesn't remember um, specific details on. And, um, and I <clears throat> tried really hard not to re-traumatize her um, when she, she said that she wanted to share her story. And so I kind of let her share it in the way that she wanted to, which meant I didn't ask a ton more details after she shared her, her piece of it. Um, and so anyway, so she was, she was held at the border, um, as a hostage. It was in Reynosa, Mexico. And, um, when she stayed behind Carlos and Lupe or Carlos and Julia crossed, crossed over to the United States. Well, Border Patrol picked them up pretty much immediately, and they were processed um, there. And when they were processed, for whatever reason, they separated Carlos um, and, and Julia. And it's, it's somewhat unclear. We don't have the paperwork on that, so we don't know for sure what happened. And we also, like, the family had lost contact with Carlos after all of this had happened. So we don't know his side of the story. But it also was happening during um, – it, it wasn't the public – um, announcement of uh, the zero tolerance policy, but there were reports showing the zero tolerance that had, had been happening um, about a year prior to uh, when it ended. So the official zero tolerance policy that we know of started in April. It was announced in April of 2018 and ended in June. 
um, the end of June in 2018, but there were reports showing that it actually started in June of 2017. So it's very possible that, that they were simply separated because of zero tolerance. It's also possible they were separated because what is seen as a stepfather in Honduran um, culture and law, um, even though her, his name was on um, Julia's birth certificate, that's not necessarily seen as a stepfather uh, according to American law. Um, and so uh, that's a little bit unclear why they were separated, but they were separated. And when they were separated, um, she, Julia, went to live with her stepdad, Carlos's sister, who was already living in North Carolina. Um, that's called a sponsorship family. Um, and when she went and lived with the sponsorship family, it was there that she was neglected. Um, so hopefully that kind of connects everything together. When she was neglected, she was um, wandering the streets one day of a town not too far from where we live in our county. Um, and that's the police found her. And that's kind of how she ended up um, in DSS care. Um, yeah. So uh, it took about, um, yeah, it took a lot of uh, emails and texts and phone calls and trying to figure out what we, were, what we could do, what we couldn't do. To, to be able to get all the paperwork set and ready for her to, to, to travel back to Honduras. So in July um, of 2018, um, right, a little, I think a little over four months after she came into our home, uh, Andrew and I traveled back to Honduras with her and were able to, to see her reunited with her mother and her brothers. Um, wow. So, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did I cover it all? <laughs> yes. Okay. Oh, yeah. You know, what I was thinking while you were telling that whole story is just um, how much work that was for you and for your husband and your family. And there are, I mean, I'm sure there are so, so many uh, people who may not have been willing to put in all of that work um, to get her, to get Julia back to her mom. I mean, you, you probably, I mean, you could have just said like, well, she's, her mom is not here and we're going to like, we can move toward adoption. Um, so I, I don't know. That's just something that was like so striking to me is that you fought so hard for this family to be, to be reunited. Yeah, the the sad and scary thing about all of that is you're absolutely right. It's it's very true. And um, one of the things that I um, I'm concerned and worried about in those situations is that um, even even the social workers told us if you didn't advocate as much as you did for this to happen, um, it would have been a lot less work. And if we didn't have the social work social worker team that we did. Um, it would have been a lot less work and a lot cheaper for the social services office um, to just adopt her out to us. Yeah. And um, that just makes me so sad because I just, uh, I just can't even imagine being a mom in that situation and not knowing if you're going to see your child again. Um, yeah. Because you're hoping and seeking for a better life. It just doesn't make sense. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'd, I'd like to talk about 
um, white savior complexes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I think every, all of this is, is so important with where our country is at right now. Mm, yeah. um, I mean, how, uh, how do we talk about this? How do we talk about um, race and white privilege and white, sav- white savior complexes without people just shutting down? I mean, we yeah. know people like people of privilege, when you start to poke, I mean, I know I do it when people start to poke at me and at my privilege, I can literally feel like the hackles going up. Like I don't want to deal with it. So, I mean, how can we possibly talk about this in a grace filled, but also justice oriented way? Yeah. Yeah. It's, It's a wonderful question. It's a very difficult question to answer because like you're saying, Right now, I mean, gosh, in some in so many situations, like if I even say something about my whiteness, it's immediate. Somebody jumps on me on Twitter, and um, and um, it's just uh, I think I think we have to recognize as white people, especially as white evangelical church, um, that we are white. First of all, <laughs> like oh my gosh, we're white. Um, and white people have a culture and we dominate in a lot of ways. And it's really hard to see that when you don't have to see that. Um, and I think, um, I think what you said is true that it, it, one of the things that I feel like I have to go back to is just this concept of justice. Um, if we can see justice, um, as right relationship between people, if we can see charity, which is, this is kind of how I define it, but as this pedestal that, that puts one person up above the other and says that this person is the have and this person is the have not. Um, if we can see that concept, that charity mindset as an anti-God, um, that is uh, really anti-Christ in so many ways. And Um, I think that it has to go back to that biblical basis, especially when um, we're we're talking to people who believe that, um, you know, the Bible is inerrant, right? And so we got to go back to the Bible and, and back up what we're talking about because it's there. If we actually look, it's very much there. Um, especially in the Old Testament, when we're talking about gleaning laws and and how it how the laws were set up for the sojourners and the immigrants to to make sure that we were taking care of of others who are marginalized, um, it's all right there. But we have to be willing to open our eyes and see it. And really, like, unfortunately, in most cases, it feels like if you if I'm talking to someone about a white savior complex and they don't have any non-white friends, it's almost an impossible conversation to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if they don't have any friends that are not a part of the dominant culture in whatever way that might be, um, it's a very difficult conversation to have. Sadly. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I am... So I'm working on uh, a book proposal right now, and I am, uh, I was writing a chapter about how 
I never, um, trying to think, how do I say this? I never saw true diversity until college Hmm. because I lived in a small farming community in the middle of Ohio, nowhere. Hmm. Um, And I talk about how like I can count on one hand the number of people of color who were in my high school. And then I, yeah. And then I talk about how I can remember the first um, time I was on a college campus and I Mm -hmm. walked by a Muslim woman who was wearing a hijab and she smiled and said, hi. And I was so taken aback that I, Mm. I don't remember. I don't remember if I said hello, if I smiled, I don't remember anything because all Mm. I can remember is that such irrational fear just because I had never seen anyone who was different than me. Um, Mm. And you're right. Like when you don't see, when you don't experience any differences outside of yourself, you can't possibly understand how you are privileged. That's right. Because you don't see anything different. That's Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Real quick, there's a yeah. there's an article that my friend Ryan Kuja wrote um, called "How the Church Can Combat the Idolatry of White Mythology," um, and he talks a lot about white savior complex in his book um, from the inside out. But that that particular article, it's on Missio Alliance, um, is just really powerful um, to kind of help maybe those of us who don't see it immediately um, to try to see it a little bit. A little bit more clearly it's it's really powerful article yeah I that sounds amazing I have not read it but I will find it and I will link it in the show notes awesome. too awesome. so everybody can see it yeah for sure um okay so I want to talk about this quote um that I pulled from this new book and um it's oh my gosh it's so short but it's so good and I really want to <laughs> talk about it <laughs> um, okay when you were talking about uh, white American evangelicalism and how we need to learn or to remember that salvation is not only personal, but also communal. Yeah. yeah, Can you just kind of talk about that a little bit? I mean, it's, it's so good and we need it so much right now. Yeah. And I think this is very related to our whiteness too. So, um, a good while ago, I was thinking about, um, I don't know if you ever did this or ever heard people do this, but in the, in the white evangelical kind of circles that I grew up in, I remember people talking about like, oh, I found a great parking spot. Jesus favors me or, um, <laughs> yeah. did you ever? Okay. Yep. So, <laughs> so, um, I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, like I assumed that the favor of God, um, I kind of put that title on what was actually my white privilege. Um, and, mm. and I think a lot of us do that. Um, but the way that it ties into this is, is again, going back to this justice concept, this is very, this is such a powerful word to me. Um, when, when we talk about justice in the Bible, um, the word that is, is often translated as well, especially in the New Testament, is, is the word righteousness. So we think of, of these two words kind of very distinctly, at least, at least I did um, growing up in the culture that I grew up in. And um, it kind of felt like to me righteousness was personal 
and, or feels that way to me that righteousness, we're talking about like personal salvation. Like, are you righteous um, before God? Are you clean before God? Right. Um, But there's also this, this word that is justice. And so when you see the word righteous, um, righteous or righteousness, in the Bible, it's, it's interesting to try to go back to the, the original language and see if the word justice is also there, if it could have maybe been justice um, as well as righteousness. So the word justice is, is uh, really about shalom. It's a component of what shalom is and shalom being a communal justice. Um, so the way I define it in, in my first book is that justice is really right relationship between individuals. Um, but then shalom is like, well, actually I should say it this way. Justice is an ideal, ideal, um, state of relationship and shalom is the ideal state of a community. And so you really can't have the ideal state of a community unless you have the ideal state, uh, between people within that community. And I think that a lot of times we look at salvation, um, we look at that word, which actually means like wholeness and completeness. Um, and we think of it just in terms of an individual. And that again, goes back to our very American society that says that you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, that you can achieve success, that you can achieve an American dream. And then it's all about you, 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 you. Um, but you know, living in a culture like Mexico or Honduras, where I lived for a while too, um, I start to see, sadly, um, some of the grossness of that, right? Some of the negativity behind that, because what it taught me to do was to not want to live in community with people. It taught me to not want to share my toys. And I think I talk about this some in the book, too, with between Julia and, um, and our kids and the differences that they have. When Julia would ask a question about a toy, she would say, um, her first question would be, um, whose is this? And then can I, am I allowed to play with it? Um, and so when we went and, um, with her back to Honduras and she opened up her suitcase with some of her toys, her, um, brother, that's a couple years older than her immediately came in and started playing with the toys. And it, I was just like, I stood and looked and I was like, wow, this is not, I mean, I knew this, you know, I had lived in this culture before. I knew that that was not the case, but to watch it in front of me like that and to know how difficult it was for her to adapt to that in my home. And even now when my kids say something like to each other, like, no, that's my toy. You're not allowed to play with that. Um, Sometimes I wonder like, are we doing the best thing for for our children by allowing them to allow these rules in between them as siblings? Um, because we kind of perpetuate this individual sense of, of self and individual sense of, um, accomplishments and of ownership of things. And the, the biblical, you know, Old Testament society, the Israelites, they were a communal society. They were very communal. And so things aren't just yours. Um, so when I studied some about Shalom, it talks about how that word is so deep, um, and what it means is when people approach each other and say hi or say goodbye and they're saying shalom peace be with you what they're saying is peace be to you and your family and your community and everything about you like may essentially may heaven come to earth um for the community that you're a part of and i think that it's it's been a detriment to us in american evangelicalism to really only see salvation as individual and only see righteousness 
as individual because it really is so much more than that. Yeah. Um, man, I was trying to think of like, of something to say. I don't have anything to say. Um, that, that is beautiful. Um, I get really excited yeah, about it. I love, <laughs> I, love, I love it. I have never um, heard anyone uh, explain salvation or, I mean, anything. I think, I think this is part of the issue, right? That we don't ever talk about community or communal living in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Um, yeah. All right. So as we wrap up here, we ask um, everybody, we, we, I, I ask everyone <laughs> on this podcast <laughs> um, uh, a question as we wrap up. So this podcast is all about making room on the pew for all people, making room in the church um, and making sure that everyone knows that, or everyone feels that God and that the gospel and the church and all of it is for everybody. Yeah. Um, so who do you think um, the modern American church could do better at welcoming? Hmm. Uh, um, well, there's so many, but, um, but first of all, I think, I think we have to define who the modern American church is, right? So if we're talking about the white evangelical church, um, that's a different story. And I, and the reason that I point this out is because I think sometimes it's easy for us to think, um, that, um, other aspects of church don't exist. Right. So it, it would be easy for me to say, well, we need to, um, we need to be better about including immigrants. Well, in some situations, uh, there's already, there are churches, um, that are specifically for and by, um, immigrants. And I think it's really important, um, whether we are church leaders or lay members or whatever, that we're paying attention to, first of all, who we call the church. And when we say big C church, right, who are we talking about? Um, what do we mean by that? And, um, and then also, to recognize that there might be situations in which even though my heart longs for um, a church that uh, looks, you know, is full of diversity in all ways. Right. Um, I also want to recognize that there are times and spaces where um, someone from uh, not the dominant culture might just want to be around people uh, that look like them and speak the same language as them. And um, you know, one day a week, they can do that at church and maybe they can't do that the rest of the week throughout, um, throughout their days. And so, um, that can be a tricky thing to navigate because obviously, ideally we all want to, to have that universal church, right. Where, um, every tribe and tongue is, is praising God together. But at the same time, I think we need to recognize that once again, in our whiteness, we don't know what it's like, uh, to go throughout the week and to have to, to speak another language everywhere we go. Um, or try to, you know, learn another language as we go there. And, and one of the things that I remember distinctly when I was living in Mexico, and this is a completely different scenario because I'm still white and so I still have power um, being a minority in Mexico, but there were times where I just really craved church in English. 
Like I craved it. I would be like, oh man, I just really wish that I could celebrate, um, you know, on Sunday, Sunday morning, Sunday service in a language that's my own. I didn't have to translate in my head and just get exhausted afterwards. Like, um, so I think there's an element to that for sure. Um, but I do believe that especially right now we need to be, um, even if we're not welcoming them to our Sunday services, um, we need to be partnering with churches that are, that are doing this work that are on the ground. Um, there's a lot of immigrant churches around us and, uh, maybe refugees and immigrants. Like we need to, we need to really be paying attention to them, lifting up their voices, um, becoming partners to them and, and being brothers and sisters in Christ in whatever way is that that might work out in our specific regions. Yeah. Oh, I love that. You know what? Um, for the first while, like my first, I don't know, a couple months of doing the podcast, I would ask this last question and everyone would just like come up with an answer. They would, you know, people would be like, Oh, <laughs> people of color, people of who are um, in the LGBTQ community, like people had all of these uh-huh. really cool answers. And this season, coming back season two, um, everybody has been like kind of pushing back a little bit. And I love it. Um, <laughs> I had someone, I just did a podcast interview on Saturday um, a uh-huh. couple days ago. And I asked a question about race. And because this particular author talks a lot about race, because she and her husband are white and they adopted um, their daughter who is half Guatemalan, half um, African-American. And I asked a question about um, race in the church and she just so kindly was like, you know what? I'm not going to answer that because you should probably find a person of color who can answer that. And Mm -hmm. just like you did, I mean, I, I think I learned more doing the podcast than Hmm. anybody else (laughs) well thank you appreciate that I'm also a five on the Enneagram so (laughs) yes (laughs) I uh (laughs) you can probably see that if you know the Enneagram yeah yes yes (laughs) um oh I love that um well gosh Gina I just want to thank you so much for being on the podcast and for all of this work you're doing I mean honestly this is so necessary. I mean, I know I keep saying it, but every day that um, I wake up and watch the news and I see something else um, mm-hmm. in this space of um, immigrants and what's going on in our country right now with um, race and ethnicity and this obsession with uh, who is considered an American. Um, yeah by whoever's standards, um, this work is just, it's really, really important. And I'm really thankful for you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Um, I I do have one more thing that I would love to share with any church people, um, is that I think that we need to make sure, first of all, if, if we are not the ones preaching, um, if we are the ones who are listening to, to preachers, um, I think we need to really make sure that we as the church, as the white evangelical American church are preaching the robust gospel of Christ. And that means that it's not just about souls, um, but it's about bodies as well. 
and that human beings are important. It's not just about their soul getting to heaven. It's about their human body and what happens here on earth. And I think that a lot of these issues that we're running up um, against, again, goes back to that. Are we talking about righteousness or are we talking about justice? If we're talking about justice and the shalom of a whole community, then we are going to care for the bodies and souls of our neighbors. And if we only think that salvation is individual, then it's not a big deal for us to only care about somebody else's soul and not worry about what happens to their body. And I think that's so important um, in all of this work to make sure that we're doing. Yes. Yes. You know, I have um, seen that more recently, like just in the last couple of months, people bringing up this um, idea of the body and the soul being connected and how, um, I mean, somebody, I don't remember where it was, but someone was talking about how, like, it doesn't really matter if um, Jesus was raised from the dead, like physically raised from the dead because he was like raised in our hearts or something. And mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. there was a man of color who just kind of pushed back on that and said, well, you know, if, if that's true, then um, that means the bodies don't matter. And then what, what about all of my ancestors who were mm. thrown over the boat on the way here? What about Mm. all of my ancestors who endured such um, abuse at the hands of their Mm -hmm. owners? Mm -hmm. You know, um, I don't know. I Mm -hmm. just, I really appreciate you bringing that up, that idea of bodies and souls being connected. Um, Yeah. I think that's something we really need to get back to. Yeah. um, Amen. Yeah. Didn't I tell you that Gina is just so smart. She's so good at this work. I'm so glad you all got to learn from her today too. If you all enjoyed that conversation as much as I did, and I know you did, uh, make sure to follow Gina. Um, She is over on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I am linking it all in the show notes for you. And make sure to grab a copy of her newest book, Separated by the Border, a birth mother, a foster mother, and a migrant child's 3,000-mile journey. You will not regret it. It's one of the best books I've read in a really, really long time. Um, So head over. I mean, it's on Amazon. Um, Ivy Press, I think, is her publisher. Just Google it. I'm sure it'll come up. You guys will love it. Um, And then last, uh, but certainly not least, you can find me also at Bailey Joe Welch on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And that is my website too, baileyjoewelch.com. As always, if you all enjoyed this conversation, if uh, this has positively impacted you in any way or is encouraging to you, um, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss anything and leave a review Um, that really helps new people find us along the way and as always if you share me on social media uh, please make sure to use hashtag making room on the pew and tag me talk to you next time Mm